Join us on this chapter of the Next Gen Movement where we dive into conversation with Cassandra Bates, where she's currently working as a subject matter expert for NASA, where she looks after all things digital, including analytics. Now, we really focus on the art of telling a good story. What's the science behind it and how effective can it be when executed correctly? Now, this isn't your usual conversation with a marketer or a digital person. Really dive into big topics around gender equality, the power of play, and dive into to the new gig economy and what that means for people in the digital space looking for jobs. So and hope you enjoy this chapter. We had a lot of fun with Cassandra. All the best. Take care. Peace. Welcome to Next Gen Movement, our sole mission to empower tomorrow's leaders by harnessing and unleashing collective wisdom, lessons and experiences of thought leaders within the community. Hey guys, it's Toph from the Next Gen Movement and I'm with my co-host RJ as we are about to go under the surface with our next guest, Cassandra Bates. If you haven't heard of Cassandra, I can tell you that she is a force to be reckoned with. She has been a marketing expert for global brands such as Mattel, Sony, Coca-Cola, and a large number of established companies on consumer engagement and how to, put, how to move product faster and smarter. Today, she consults for NASA as a subject matter expert with a focus on social and digital engagement, youth marketing, analytics, and storytelling. And she is the chief marketing officer and digital and social media advisor for emerging startups, showing them the value of strategy and creating compelling brand experiences. So it's an absolute pleasure having Cassandra on the Next Gen Movement today. Welcome, Cassandra. Thank you so much. No, my pleasure. So I, I wanted to open up with um, something about storytelling. I believe it's a powerful way to help connect with other humans. It really paints a picture with what we've been through already. Um, I believe that's why a movie or a book can be captivating. Um, and plus, humans are neurobiology, neurobiologically wired for story. Um, now, you get to use the storytelling in your day-to-day, -day, in your job. And I'm really curious what makes you so excited to bring this element to NASA and other brands. Absolutely. Well, thank you. I think that storytelling is probably a lifelong journey <laughs> of, of learning how to tell a good story. But stories are essential. Um, stories have been around as long as we have. And whether it's uh, to understand where your next meal is coming from or to convince somebody to eat their greens or perhaps to even excite and delight people with the concept of becoming a scientist. And so for me, storytelling has been very personal. Um, I was fortunate enough to have a mother who loved reading out loud, not from children's books, but from uh, adventure adult books to us. And so I think um, it really helped propel an imagination. And there are five main story steps, character setting, plot, conflict, and resolution. And often it's, if, you, if you're missing one of those five, you sometimes just can't get your audience there with you. And so having a compelling character, um, describing the setting, understanding that there could be a plot twist or conflict, and then the resolution. And we see this so often in the stories that we tell around results. 
for marketing and branding. And, and those are the most compelling stories are when they have all five elements with the resolution and some results shared. So it's that's a, a bit yeah. my Yeah, look, Cassandra, it's, uh, it's RJ here. And um, again, really, really grateful that you're joining us on the, on the show. And storytelling is something that is kind of dear to my heart. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the sales game. And, and I think that a, a successful uh, relationship with a potential client uh, really, uh, it's in, it's in very important to have a compelling story, um, and obviously back that with facts. One of the areas that I think storytelling is super important um, is in, in in the political world, in the political scene. I think any any strong kind of candidate has a compelling story. What what's your view on storytelling in the world of politics, and how important do you think it is and do you think that po that, that politicians um, uh, carefully draft and kind of engage with those five steps purposefully or is it something that happens more accidentally? Uh, I can tell you that everything is purposeful when it comes to politics and from my working with the Advertising Research Foundation in New York which is a global think tank for what works and doesn't work in advertising and media um, it, there are many Australian companies and media companies that are members of it that everything is measured. Uh, the inflection, the conflict, where, how things are being resolved, every single aspect of a story is measured. Um, right down to even like a two-second ad. So um, to answer your question, it, it is critically important. Um, when a story doesn't resonate or a story um, is out of sync in one of the five. So let's say that you've got a, a setting and a plot, but the character just seems really out of place. Um, people in their subconscious are aware of that. And, and that can, in politics, really uh, probably kill your career. <laughs> so, if, so if people think one thing of you, then they project what they expect of you. And those expectations are often um, not always discussed. And so it's a very interesting play back and forth between the expectations that an audience has and the expectations that the storyteller themselves have of the audience. And checking back and forth from a corporate standpoint is really important. It's just as important in politics. Uh, what, what I find some of the best storytellers do is listen. And there's a true skill to listening. And I think the same is true of politicians. If they stop and really listen to their constituents, their voting citizens, the people that are actually in the Republic voting for them, um, they'll go far. It's a very, it's a very um, interesting tool that can be used for good as well as bad, I suppose, right? Like, like any dynamic tool, really, there's such, such, a, such a power behind it. And, and, and it can be really used um, effectively um, and, and how that, you know, how that, where that sits in, in whether it's, it, it's a good outcome or whether it's a not so good outcome is, is really at the, in the hands of the, the, the person wielding that story, I suppose. Very much so. Very much so. Um, the same is true of advertising and any kind of 
media journalism, um, any, any type that a story is involved, whether that's a, a video game or a movie, there are sometimes unintended consequences, which is why thinking things through and really understanding their impact is essential. And so often we cut corners. You know, we don't take that time to see how different people might perceive different aspects of the story and it, and it could influence their behavior. Because essentially what I've learned from incredibly intelligent scholars, such as Jerry Zaltman, who did a lot in the neurometrics space, understanding how the brain actually works when you're making a decision 95% of decision-making is subconscious. So that means the stories that are in there are, are the ones that are actually making the decisions for us for the most part. And what's even more interesting is how the brain works. The fact that the, the most stimulating part is the emotional part, and that actually stimulates the action and only does the prefrontal come in after the fact to post-rationalize. So when you apply that to storytelling or politics, it's really interesting. You'll see that the, some of the most effective ads are the ones that are emotional and then provide kind of a logical rationale at the end. And to your point, it can be used for good to, we're all in this together uh, during COVID. Let's make sure that we're looking out for one another. We don't wanna be responsible for you know, accidentally killing somebody else yeah. by infecting them. Um, but it can also be used to, to turn the tides on public sentiment around uh, a war that's happening. So yeah. absolutely, yeah. very true point. Mm -hmm. I hear a lot of, um, when you were just saying then about the whole 95% is from our subconscious and with the stories. Um, I know RJ will relate to this because I'm the one that told him about it, but the Brene Brown, um, I don't know if you've seen it, Cassandra, the call to courage. Um, yes. that, yeah. When she's saying like the stories we tell ourselves and I relate to that because I've done, a, I'm still continuing doing work on myself uh, with the men's work I'm a part of to make myself a better, better man uh, to my partner and to the people around me. But it is fascinating with the stories we tell ourselves and that storytelling does come, it becomes almost psychological, doesn't it? With, um just with what you said there I, I find that um so fascinating and that just resonated really hard with me and just even on politics what you guys are talking about the i find that even in today's age with like a lot of the movements happening like you've got the women ones with uh the women ones with like me too and times up and gender equality um i'm glad they're getting light on like people actually finally listening um, because it's a lot of society is labeled women and often pigeonholing them. And that's something that means a lot to me. Like I was raised by a really caring mom um, and the women around me, I'm very grateful for have a lot of mentors around them. But um, even for yourself, like I found what you've achieved and what you're doing and especially what you're passionate about is, is very empowering. Um, I'm, I'm curious to know, just going piggybacking what I've said, like what sort of stories were you telling yourself that may turned into struggles that you've overcome relating to these like societal pressures? Yeah, that's a really pertinent question for me right now at this stage, because I had decided to do, do my walkabout at a much older age than I think most people do. Uh, in America, 
there's so much pressure to get out and get a job and work and uh, one thing leads to the next and it's not always valued to uh, to take time off and explore and after a pretty illustrious career in marketing and advertising i decided i was really ready uh, for a change and i wanted to see the world and so i took 12 months off and backpacked around the world hitchhiking and camping out and grabbing rides on the back of people's motorcycles and and just really spending time with locals in 12 countries over 12 months and uh, it's fascinating to me coming back into the workforce and realizing that once you step off the merry-go-round there's a psychological impediment in hr and some hiring managers minds i think it's primarily the recruiting and the hr side where they just don't value somebody going out and seeing the world and learning stories that resonate with locals um they want somebody who's been doing the same job over and over again preferably for a competitor so they could just come and do it for them and so they're not getting that richness of transferable skills or transference of what really works in the world or what resonates for people or what actually engages people and that's where disruptive innovation comes from i mean that's where the birthplace of new ideas come from and so it's really disheartening at this stage in my career and you asked me about the stories that i tell myself well i told myself stories when i decided to travel like this is going to make me a, a a richer person this is going to make me be able to answer dilemmas for companies so much more wisely and yet coming back i have only been able to join what's called you know the gig economy and many are like me <laughs> and i never anticipated at this stage of my career that i wouldn't be able to get the full-time job that it would just be freelance now i'm joined by you know like maybe roughly 40 percent of other people who are also in the gig economy especially now thanks to covid so i guess there's you know some sort of joy in numbers but the stories that you tell yourself when you don't get something that you expect um, can be debilitating. And that's really important to understand at a young age so that you're aware when it starts to happen. It's like a great TED talk from a, a woman who was a medical doctor and she knew all the symptoms of having a stroke. And when she wow. was having the stroke, she could identify the symptoms that were happening within her own body. And it's much the same thing with these stories. You know, you hear stories of other people and you think, okay, now how does this apply to me? And it'll come back to you at just the right time in your career. And so just this morning, I heard a story about it's how you frame yourself. It's how it's the stories that you tell yourself that are the most important. So even if you're getting rejected from a full-time job because they think it was um, impractical that you would take a year off and travel the world at a you know, senior level. Um, it, you live with yourself ultimately and you, and you want to do work that's good for the world. And so those stories that you then recreate for how you frame where you are, what you're doing, what you want to do next, those are so important. So a lot of storytelling is also about your present and your future. 
that's a that's a wonderful first of all oh, that was a wonderful question and cassandra that was a, a marvelous answer i think the hallmark of resilience is the ability to reframe your narrative narratives are important and they're super super uh, indicative of a high performing individual however when that narrative becomes too encompassing in terms of identification with a I'm a I'm a high performing athlete I build my narrative around that then I break my leg and I'm not able to um, pivot that narrative then becomes destructive so there's a real need for agility with when it comes to narrative to be able to leverage it yet be agile enough to shift when it no longer serves oneself and uh, cassandra you know i think you that you know you brought up an interesting point so i'm an american i've been in australia for 12 years um i grew up in the bay area and i noticed as well so i came here when i was uh, i was born here then grew up there then came back here um after i graduated university and i've been here since the, uh, i think 24 25 and when I go back home to the U.S., uh, there's a view that I no longer know what's really going on. I, I think, I think, and, and, and I've done business with fellow Americans since I've been in Australia, that when they find out I'm an American, there's a bit of uh, nepotism and, and I'm treated a bit different. Now, these are gen, 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 general uh, kind of um, interpretations, but my view on that is that sometimes in the U.S. we don't necessarily value what's happening globally because we're the bee's knees, and in the sense that it's where it's all happening. And unfortunately, I think when we live in America, we develop sometimes a myopic view that doesn't necessarily value the global to the extent that maybe living in Europe or some other countries, I mean, you know, sabbaticals are, are very common and that would be valued. And you're 100% right in saying that innovation can only occur when new ideas are engaged and new ideas, they have to, they have to come out of doing new things. They can't come out of the same birthplace, can they, right? So. So I think it's a really courageous thing you've just said, and I think it's it's a, it's a really good point um, that that you drive around um, around that. And just just back to your 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 personal narrative and how it's helped shape your view on things. Coming up as a as a young businesswoman. Um, things I would assume would have not always been easy for you when you did come across scenarios where you might have been passed over or there was not a level of equality that one would expect how did you bounce back from that and move through it what were the what what were the mechanisms that you used because i think it's important for anyone that may be marginalized whether it be through ethnicity, ethnicity sex or you know, choice of sexuality to really understand what Cassandra did in those circumstances in her career coming up, where it, you know you didn't always experience equality. How did you move through that? Yeah, that's a 
that's a powerfully that's a powerful question and and honestly i'll i'll start with a little bit of a story i was raised by a grandmother who was from the great depression and a mother who was from the 50s and they had very different views of uh, the workplace and what a woman's role is within a relationship and that relationship is work as well as home and um, the power of your own voice and the impact that you can have so I had these kind of two conflicting and I'm not alone that those two generations you know one beget the other mm -hmm. and they could not have been more polar opposite you know 19 40s you've got women working in journalism and the 1950s and 60s you've got women staying at home as housewives and they're like completely opposite value systems mm -hmm. in many ways um and so i had never anticipated that there would be a difference in in what i was being paid and to this day unfortunately in america we still haven't been able to pass a law that states that all people should be paid equally and it's it's a bit shocking to me actually that our own female senators uh, turned that down years ago when it came up and this was within the last eight, eight years so um it's perplexing to me to understand how to actually handle it because it really depends on your value within the company uh your affiliation with the company um your what you what you're learning and getting from your position within the company um not all people want the same things and so having let's say daycare or other time off may be a better compensation than 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 the monetary and so your question is a little bit of a loaded one because it's not just the variable of how much you're compensated it's it's the at any time where you feel that you're not being treated fairly with your counterparts and that's a dicey game i mean there's a reason why there's a, a hefty practice of people either leaving their jobs when they're dissatisfied or um you know, it's a complicated process because you have to know what your value is and if you don't know what your value is you can't begin to have these difficult conversations of saying is there something that i'm doing that's not as valuable um or, or is there training that you want me to take are there certain things that other people are doing that are providing additional value that i'm not privy to that i'm not aware of um and you have to craft a a plan a project plan with the person who's directly responsible for your compensation and again that's not necessarily monetary to to really understand the value that you have and having worked in sales i can tell you the best advice i had early on was make sure you're bringing in at least three times what they're paying you because they expect an roi from you so i guess the first conversation you have is with yourself and outlining what you're getting out of the job and, and having a hard conversation with yourself about what you're actually providing. Yeah. I can uh, definitely relate to the whole transition because I've probably in my third career change now. I, I did mechanical engineering, like pretty much straight off the high school. 
Um, and then I went down uh, an athlete and charity background, which is polar opposite. Um, <laughs> and then transitioned into more of a talent acquisition, human resources role. And it's true, knowing the value add, but I feel like I've learned that myself from my own experiences and almost going down a really unconventional path um, has helped me almost like decide and gamify like where I want to go in there to bring that. And it does kind of make me question about the monetary thing, but as long as I'm actually putting it towards a cause and that's, and there's a passion behind it, I think that will help solidify with what I'm doing. I'm really um, curious about how you, you talked about how you were at the, um, your first job was in the jet propulsion laboratory. I think I was at Hubble. I think it was when I was doing some research on you. Um, and then obviously that probably helps having that background to where you're at, at NASA. And then I'm guessing you've probably got some sort of passion towards that. I think you told me about making science snackable. I guess that would help. Um, I'm, I'm really, yeah, I'm really curious to know more about that and how you said like gamifying and making science snackable when we first spoke. Yeah, so that goes back to the storytelling. Um, have you ever noticed when the rules to a game are just too long and complicated or a book on a shelf is just too big and heavy and you look at it and you think, I'll do that, but I'm just not in the mood to do that right now. And then have you ever noticed how just like a snappy little TV show or something will just kind of grab your attention? Maybe it's a bunch of YouTube videos. And before you know it, like hours have passed, right? So what is it about that? Like what is the taut tension that's in there that engages somebody? We're all pretty much alike in more ways than we're different. And that is you know, we have to be engaged from this personal emotional level to make whatever is expected of us to invest, whether that's time or energy, worthwhile. And so often when we see things like science, we think science or math, that's hard, that's um, studious, that's professional, that's the workplace. But, you know, science is, can be magical. Science can be illuminating, right? Like there, there are so many things. Science isn't, isn't finite. Science is infinite. You know, as we've seen over centuries, science changes. As we change and learn and grow and understand more, it's cumulative. It builds on itself. And when they thought the world was flat, that came from scientists. So, so, so much of what, what we're trying to do now is engage everybody in the discussion because we don't have all the answers. In fact, it's, it's an ever ongoing learning process, but what we do have is more insight and more data. And that data can be packaged just like video companies do or television programs do or ads do or political ads do to, to, to create an aha, to create a transition, to make something playful. Um, one of the things that I learned at Mattel that I'd never been exposed to before are play patterns. And play patterns exist in all things. It's basically how our brain learns. When I worked at Mattel, I worked on the Fisher-Price and the infant preschool brands. And so much of the work that I did there was understanding 
not only motor skills, but legitimately, like how does your brain develop? And, and how do you learn? How do you learn empathy? How do you learn playfulness? And what are the different types of play that you do at different ages? Like what are you naturally drawn to when you're four versus what are you drawn to when you're eight? And what are you drawn to as a boy when you're four versus a girl when you're eight? And believe it or not, there's a science to this. It's not just art or creativity. And so the, these play patterns of hero play or fantasy play are very important at a young age, like four and five years old, to determine who you think you can become, who you think you're capable of becoming. So if you play with a Barbie and that Barbie's an, uh, a, a pretty girl with a bag, but she's not an astronaut, you may not think that you're capable of being an astronaut, especially if you only see boys playing with astronauts. Uh, and so it really is critically important to understand how these play patterns develop and then and then throughout our life, how different stories are catalysts to play. Because those stories that you learn at a young age when you're when you're doing cooperative play or um gosh, there are so many interesting there are so many interesting stories that I could tell you about the different play patterns, but but they they are true whether you're you know opening a, a can of Coca-Cola and you hear it fizzle, or you're closing a a car door of a Jaguar and you hear how heavy it is. Um, these play patterns create desire in us to redo something, to do it again and again, to re-engage, and um, they're just very interesting as a topic for us to even be aware of, right? To pull out of our subconscious and make it part of our 5% of conscious brain to say like, why, why am I responding so, so heavily to this? Or what is it about this product, this idea, this TV show, this book that I'm so addicted to? Is it that I'm role-playing? Is it that I'm doing something that's in the cooperative play space because I don't get enough of that in my life? Or is it that I'm doing something in the hero role play because I don't get enough of that in my life? So, um, you know, our brains are muscles and they're meant to be exercised and grow. It's a, it's something that I see on a daily basis with, um, with my three-year-old. I mean, he, um, I'm a endurance runner, so I run really, really, stupidly long distances and my son sees that and he sees the gear and all that that goes along he also has had exposure to soccer for a really long time and he's going through this phase where he um he puts on soccer jerseys every day he has to wear soccer jerseys but that then enables him to go into this kind of character where he role plays himself as a professional soccer player. And so I'm getting all this feedback from the school that he's telling everyone he plays for Real Madrid and he doesn't like Barcelona. And, and it's like, it's so powerful as to what you expose them children to at a young age. And I guess toy companies, you know, sometimes controversially have known this as well. Um, you know, there. I know there's. I think there's some Geneva Convention laws around the marketing towards children. But you're exactly right. You know, when Barbie's only wearing kind of homemaker 
Susie Q outfits and she's not dressed as an astronaut. Well, well, you know, young girls may not think that they can become astronauts, right? And I'm, I think it's incredibly, it's incredibly important point you bring up. Um, and I think this whole piece around science, there's been this perception for a long time, I think, you know, when we were kids, we all did science projects at school and whatnot, but like you have to be super, super smart. Right. And I think that was always a barrier to entry where I think a lot of science is experimentation and play, but kids haven't necessarily seen that side of it. And it just becomes kind of put in the too hard basket or you have to be a brainiac to be able to engage. I want to I want to ask you with science, there's such a potential I think there's certain key activities and practices within, you know, the world that can unite the world versus divide. How important do you see the collaboration of science being across the globe is a form of kind of unifying and uniting um, our movement is, a, is, a, is the human race? That's a beautiful question because often when it comes to certain finite science like like the, the more finite methodologies within let's say chemistry or physics um there is no room for it the focus the focus is different you know it's it's um it's not subjective it's objective yeah. And so uh, science, like you said, is experimentation, but it, but it does offer this opportunity for groupthink. And the research is there from the ARF and, and, and elsewhere, you know, 75 years worth of marketing research that, that groupthink actually gets you better results. Um, and so when you think about COVID and science, and you think if we're all in this together, and if everybody is looking for the the rationale for how they can can kind of save the day, how exciting is that? That it could that it could be the, the ultimate, you know, bringing together of everybody. Um, but it has to be emotional to engage people. This is the thing. This is exactly the reason why it's important to understand how the brain works and, and how if you want to engage everybody, like scientists in particular across the board, already get along really well, right? Like they already work together uh, on projects, having never met each other, but working for decades on uh, you know, different astronomy projects, for instance. It's to me, it's it's beautiful. Like it, this, there's this academic model of being able to share because by sharing, you can build upon what's known, and and cumulatively come up with a a better answer. Um, but how do we sell that in so that everybody wants to? Right? Well, like how do we sell that in? That's the question, Cassandra. I mean, scientists may have their pure the pure play agenda, but the people that are controlling the purse strings have a potentially more of an individualistic view of getting there first, right? 
you know, so like you may have collaboration from a scientist perspective, but you know, the Americans may not want the Chinese to come up with a cure first or vice versa, right? So this gets us to a really critical uh, point. Well, two actually. One is who's paying for things? So anytime you hear a story or you read something or you ask yourself, where is this coming from? What is the person trying to accomplish? Is there an ulterior motive? Is there money being paid for a particular outcome? So that's number one. And I think interestingly, number two is a really playful, just kind of pulling together of an understanding of what can be, what we're capable of, what that outcome could look like if it wasn't just one. So for instance, the powers that be divide to conquer. But if you're a storyteller and you can say, hey, we're gonna spend X amount of money over Y amount of years to get there, or if we collaborate, yeah. we can get there in half the amount of time, for half the amount of money, and guess what? We're gonna yield better results, which is gonna get us better revenue, which is gonna put us ahead of where we would have been if we had done it alone. Mm -hmm. So that's where the emotional plus the logic have to play together in a story. One leads, one follows. You're so, so right. I mean, the, the, if all you have to do is look at as a society how we frame COVID and whether or not we'll move together or it'll further create this separation. I think that'll tell us where the world's at in terms of our community, our, 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 um, our consolidated psychology, right? Like, because COVID has proved the fragility of life and just how interdependent we are. Whether that makes us collaborate or separate is yet to be determined. Well, and I suppose the storytelling and the power of who's telling those stories is going to be super critical. You know, the old 80-20 rule uh, absolutely applies here. You know, it's like 20% of the population gets to tell the story and the other 80% here live in fear and um, don't act. But I will tell you something that fascinates me and it warrants more research. And that is around the world, the great generation, those who fought in World War II, those who went through the depression, those who went through the depression prior to the war understanding that they could lose everything and still have a fulfilling life you know that the harvard study the the longitudinal study that's been going on now for more than 80 years on happiness had a lot of theories about what makes you happy in life and every one of them was debunked Every single one of their theories about you know you're you're successful in business you have you get married and you have the love of your life you have ten kids like you always wanted the, the two big finding from the 
findings from the, that study have been, you know the emotion that you're having at the time that you're having it, and you're able to communicate it to somebody that you care about around you. And so if we all as a society think back to, you know, what was it that this great generation went through around the world about losing everything and not being dependent on anybody and realizing that they still live the next day, that they were more impervious, that they used their head to think through why did things happen. And so what I truly hope will happen is not that we fear for the 20% that have the ability to tell the story because social media has disrupted that, but rather that we awaken ourselves to not be lemmings anymore, that we awaken ourselves to understanding who's in the story, what's the objective of that person for telling that story, what's our value system at the end, you know, at the end of the day, what is it that's going to make us happy? Because what's going to make us happy and content is something that we're going to want to go back and do again. That's a, that's a beautiful answer, Cassandra. And uh, we, we're, we're getting to the, the end of our time, and we really uh, want to thank you for the time that you spent with us and, and the wisdom and knowledge that you shared. It's been a really dynamic conversation and one that I can keep having, to be honest with you. But uh, we have uh, the tyranny of time. So just wanted to thank you for the time that you've given us and wanted to ask you if you can give us some information on where we can find you in terms of um, social media or anything, uh, any kind of links that you might have that would enable our, our listeners to find you. Uh, absolutely. That's very gracious of you. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. My name is Cassandra Bates. I started a company a few months ago called Evoke Play, E-V-O-K-E, -E, separate word play, P-L-Y. Um, one thing that I would love to plug, because we're in the process of recreating a new website for 27 Earth-facing missions that NASA represents and manages, um, for people to go ahead and get on that website, that's the old website. Take a spin through it. Click on everything you can. Get down into some of these projects. See how pollution is traveling in land, air, and water. Because it's your land. It's the air that you're breathing right now, and it's the water that you're drinking. So go to the site called essp.nasa.gov, and that's ESSP as an Earth System Science Pathfinder nasa.gov take a spin around and then reach out to me on linkedin i'd love to hear from you let me know what resonates let me know what stories you'd like us to tell and how to make that science daily relevant how to make it exciting and intoxicating and engaging to you so that you realize it's not nasa looking down on the earth with a satellite but it's nasa measuring the air that you're breathing right now wow that is um I am most definitely checking that out as a kid who uh, loves science and tech. Um, even the name of the company it sounds like to embrace my inner child. <laughs> so I'm most definitely going to look into that. 
Um, Cassandra, um, just want to ask you the final question that we ask all our guests. Um, what is one piece of game-changing advice that you can give to the next generation? Oh, that shouldn't be such a stump, huh? Okay, well, I'm going to go with the flow of this conversation, which is awareness. Get things out of your subconscious. Um, if you're starting to feel fear, usually if you're fear in your gut, and fear motivates many, many actions that we take in our life. So recalibrate. See where you're feeling something. And check in with yourself. Emotions aren't just a, a female trait or uh, a trait not to have if you're a female and want to be taken seriously in the workplace. Um, emotions and feelings are something that all humans have that ultimately lead to our happiness. And so my parting piece of wisdom is lean in. Lean into your feelings and your emotions. Lean into being inquisitive and understanding where stories are coming from around you and lean into being curious and kind of developing that ability to get perspective. Well, Cassandra, really, again, wanted to thank you for your time. Thank you so much for joining us. Tope, it's good to connect with you again, bro. And uh, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll close out, yeah? Absolutely. Tope and RJ, thank you so much. I really appreciate being part of this. It was pretty yeah. special.